I'd now like to welcome J.V. Hilario to come and read today's scripture. He will be reading in Espanol. Uh, of course, we will have the English there up on the screen. Uh, and then after that, I will be back for today's teaching. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Por tanto, si hay alguna consolación en Cristo, si algún consuelo de amor, si alguna comunión del Espíritu, si algún afecto entrañable, si alguna misericordia, completad mi gozo, sintiendo lo mismo, teniendo el mismo amor, unánimes, sintiendo una misma cosa. Nada hagáis por contienda o por vanagloria, antes bien con humildad, estimando cada uno a los demás como superiores a él mismo. No mirando cada uno por lo suyo propio, sino cada cual también por lo de los otros. Haya pues en vosotros este sentir que hubo también en Cristo Jesús, el cual siendo en forma de Dios, no estimó el ser igual a Dios como cosa a que esperarse, sino que despojó a sí mismo, tomando forma de siervo hecho semejante a los hombres. Y estando en la condición de hombre, se humilló a sí mismo, haciéndose obediente hasta la muerte y muerte de cruz. Por lo cual Dios también le exaltó hasta lo sumo, y le dio un nombre que es sobre todo nombre, para que en el nombre de Jesús se doble toda la rodilla de los que están en los cielos, y en la tierra, y debajo de la tierra, y toda lengua confiese que Jesucristo es el Señor para gloria de Dios Padre. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in a recently released book called Uncommon Ground, various thought leaders and writers and creatives, they consider what it means for us to communicate in these deeply divided times in which we live. Specifically, they consider how Christians can interact with and show respect to those whom they other might, otherwise might radically disagree with. And one of the contributors to that book is the rapper Lecrae. Uh, in his chapter, he reflects on how in human nature, we tend to set up protagonists and antagonists in our life story in order to make sense of our lives, meaning that we are the good guys, we look out into the world for the bad guys, and we craft particular perspectives on history and culture in order for our stories to align with our sense of being. And he reflects on how this is the general basis for his song, Welcome to America. And in that song, he tells three very different stories of those in America. So in one, in, verse, in one verse of that song, Lecrae tells the story of a soldier who struggled and fought for the country that he loves. And for him, the antagonists are the unpatriotic Americans who, in his view, are not grateful for what he has done. They complain about America and they do things like kneel at national anthems during the national anthem. But he has lost friends. He lost his mental health, his marriage, and he nearly lost his life 
because he believes the American principles and ideals are pure and worth fighting for, but he feels like he is fighting for people that don't share his patriotism. In another verse of that song, the protagonist in that song is a young black person struggling against generational systems of oppression and injustice. This person is trying to resist criminality, but is drawn into it as the only means of provision for his family. For this person, America's racist history and continued marginalization of his people is the problem. And he wants to do things the right way, but is forced in alternative directions. In this narrative, America is the antagonist. In the third verse of that song, Lecrae tells the story of an immigrant who can't understand why Americans are always fighting and why they're so ungrateful for the country that they have because there's freedom and opportunity and an abundance of food and education. Things were so much worse where he comes from. What a wonderful country this is. All he wanted to do was to make it here in America. But America didn't want him. He couldn't get approved to stay and so went back from where he came. And Lecrae notes this interesting thought about these three stories. He says, the irony is these stories are all true. They just aren't comprehensively true. Each story attributes every ounce of evil to the villain and places the ultimate hope in the wrong hero. And he goes on to say, But sin is the antagonist, and Jesus is the protagonist. Like any good villain, sin and Satan will actively recruit us to the dark side, inviting us to abuse power, to riot, to kill, to hate. But Christ invites us to come into the glorious light, the true hero shows us how to love and empathize and forgive and work to restore what sin has broken. Now, if you've been with us, you know that we've been in a series going through the book of Philippians, looking at the Christian life, a life that ought to be marked by joy, regardless of the circumstances that life might bring. And today, we consider what Lecrae is highlighting in his words. And what Paul is highlighting here in Philippians 2, because what we see in both what Lecrae describes and what Paul is describing is we see a biblical understanding of humility. And we see the power of that humility and also how we can actually experience living out that kind of humility. And so that's what I want to do today. I want to take a look at the definition, the power, and the reception of humility. All right, let's start with the definition of humility. Now, Lecrae's song, back to his words. Lecrae's song and his reflections on how we craft our story really expresses well what humility is and why we don't have it. So Lecrae articulates, essentially, our need to step outside of our own experiences to get proximate enough to others even those we might otherwise consider an enemy, to listen to their experiences and attempt to understand their story. See, that is biblical humility. 
And this is certainly what Paul is getting at in verses 3 and 4 of our passage. Let me reread re- re- those for you. It says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis uh, continues these thoughts of what biblical humility ought to look like, and Lewis puts it this way. Lewis said, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy so e- enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I love Lewis's thoughts there. That when we are truly humble, those around us might not even articulate it as us being a humble person, but rather they just feel like we are people that have listened to them, that have cared about them. The truly humble are not even thinking about being humble. They are solely thinking about others, the mark of true biblical humility. And humility ought not to be understood, as Lewis points out, as some kind of meekness or lowliness, as though thinking little of yourself is virtuous. Rather, what Paul and C.S. Lewis and Lecrae are all saying is that biblical humility, it requires us getting outside of ourselves and doing the hard work of getting close enough to others that we might be able to hear their experiences and to care deeply enough about them that we are not just concerned with our own interests, but also with their interests as well. But if that is what humility is, I think it's also worth emphasizing a little bit more what it is not. See, humility is understanding the stories and experiences of others, yes. But it is not rejecting our own story and experiences or what we hold to be true. And what I mean by that is I can empathize with and love and have compassion for those whom I deeply disagree with. Those things are not mutually exclusive. And in our current culture wars and political firestorms that's going on, there are deeply held beliefs that have caused people to be deeply divided. And to be quite honest, you know, I have deeply held beliefs about some of the most contentious issues of the day. And I regularly, I'm sure, have the same feelings that many of you do when I experience someone who rejects what I hold to be right and true. I do not, in my own nature, think about biblical humility when I come against those that disagree with things that I hold to be right and true. But hear me, biblical humility is not capitulating to everyone else's perspective, but rather, when confronted with an alternative story or experience or belief, biblical humility is 
for my first initial reaction to be that I stop and I listen and I empathize and I try to understand someone else's experience. It is the realization that we can all learn from and be shaped by the experiences of others. And in so doing, biblical humility provides an opportunity to make a friend where there might otherwise have been an enemy. And this, my friends, is the power of humility. Let's consider that further. Now, of course, ideally speaking, when everyone is thinking more about the good of others than just about the good of themselves, in theory, everyone should flourish, right? Of course, however, we know that that does not always happen. We know that when we care for others or we seek to understand others, there will be those who do not do the same for us. And as a result, we can be taken advantage of or hurt in some way. I understand that that is the case and that is true. But I want you to also know that biblical humility has a power to transform the heart. It has a way of shaping us and shaping others in ways that brings transformation from within. Now, Paul, in this passage, he reminds us not only of the biblical definition of humility, but he also shows us the power that it has to transform. Of course, he does so by showing us the ultimate example of biblical humility, of course, found in Jesus himself. And he does so in verses 6 through 11. He shows us what power it holds. Now, verses 6 through 11, I'll be honest with you, could seriously be its own teaching series. Uh, this passage might be the most concise, but also the most dense articulation of the Christian faith. Uh, it could be argued that this is one of the most important Bible passages uh, of all of Scripture. And I know that preachers have a tendency to say that about every passage of the Bible that they might be preaching on. But in this case, I promise you, I'm not uh, exaggerating. It is actually that important to this passage. Uh, and there's no way that I could possibly say all that needs to be said about this passage in this sermon. Our sermon is on humility, and I need to focus my attention there. However, in this passage alone, we see the divinity of Christ. We see the triune nature of God. We see the incarnation, deity coming in human flesh. We see the obedient life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, the consummation of all things when one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord over all. These five verses are packed with gospel truth. And I also say that just as a little bit of a side note, but an important one, that verses 6 through 11 are seen by scholars as likely being one of the very first hymns of the early church. This is actually called the Christ hymn. Now, Paul either wrote this previously and wove it into Philippians, or it was already circulating, uh, written by someone else and circulating at the time, and he wove it in. This passage would have likely been used, those verses would have been used in corporate worship gatherings and was likely written only 10 years after Christ. And that's important for a couple of reasons. It's important because some have argued, number one, that Christ never claimed to be God. 
and that the claim was really just a claim that came many, many decades later by his followers who wanted to make up the deity of Christ in order to promote their religion. But if this hymn was written and circulated just years after Jesus, that means that the very first Christians, most of whom were Jewish, by the way, believed that Jesus was divine. And unlike the Romans and unlike the Greeks at the, at the time, first century Jews were the last people on earth who had ever ascribed deity to a man. Okay, I'll stop there because there's so much more that could be said about this passage. Um, you know, I could say more about what it means for Jesus to be in very nature God, that he's not just a God, but rather the very substance of God and what that means. I could say more about what the ESV translation means when it says that he emptied himself. Uh, I could say more about what it means that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, either willingly or unwillingly. One day we will all bow. I could say all those things, but I won't say any of them. I seriously need to stop. I'll stop right there. Back to humility. Consider for a moment the totality of what we just said, though. That Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, set aside his position of, of power and authority to take on human flesh. And he did so in order that, as Hebrews 4 tells us, that we might have a high priest who could empathize with our weakness and that who was, who was tempted in every way, just as we are. And according to verse 7, who came in order to be a servant, that he might lay down his life for those that he came to serve. And who did he come to serve? And this is where the power really comes in. Romans 5, hear me, Romans 5 and Colossians 1 tell us that we were enemies of God. And that while we were enemies of God, it was then that he reconciled us through the death of Christ. Do you know what that means? It means that Christ came into close proximity in order to empathize with those he came to serve, those who were his enemies. He did so by doing what Lecrae urges he crossed lines that divided in order to understand the experiences of others. He came to fully understand our story, our experience. Christ, the protagonist, comes to us in our sin and in our rebellion as we were the antagonists in order that we might no longer be enemies of God, but rather, as John 15 and James 2 tell us, that we might be called friends of God. Biblical humility takes enemies and makes them friends. But what does it mean to be a friend of God? And probably more importantly than that, what interest does Jesus have in wanting to be our friend? Why would God pursue us in this way? Did God really need our friendship, our relationship with him? You know, if we, if we see the doctrine and understand the doctrine of the Trinity uh, rightly, what we see is that God in his very nature is full and complete. That the community of the Godhead is the fullest picture of community and love. You know, Augustine, who wrote extensively on the Trinity, argued that all other non-triune gods are defective because in order for them to love, 
or have relationship, they needed to create something to love and to have relationship with. Not the Christian God, though. The Christian God does not need humanity in order to experience community and relationship because within the Godhead, that relationship, that community, that love already existed, which is why Christians can rightly say God is love. Because love is an expression of relationship that the Godhead experiences within itself, not something that he must generate by creating objects of love. All that to say, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need our relationship or to be friends with us. Yet, out of his love, chooses to allow his creation to experience himself to be brought into that divine community by the work of Christ, by the power of the Spirit. And Jesus does what is needed to ensure that that is possible, taking enemies, making them into friends. That is the power of humility, my friends. That is the power of not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. That's the kind of power that we can experience. But here's the problem, of course. Uh, we are not Jesus. We're not Jesus. And though as we trust in Christ's work and as the Spirit of God does make us look more and more like Jesus, we still battle a selfish nature that is self-centered. To be quite honest, even as I describe for you this concept of biblical humility, my own natural thought is to say, yeah, but I know I'm right about a lot of different things. And I know that those other people who disagree with me are backward and blind to truth. And I don't want to serve them. I don't want to think about their interests at all. But even though that's our natural tendency, we are still called to value others above ourselves. To not look at our own interests, but at the interests of others. But how do we get our minds right then on that point? How do we get ourselves to a place where we embrace that idea? Well, the short answer is that we can't. Our minds will never be right on this issue. Our minds will always care more about our lives and the lives of those in our tribe than others. Our minds will always believe that our narrative is right and everyone else's narrative is wrong. Our minds will see ourselves as the protagonists and look out at those with different perspectives as the antagonists. Our minds will want to serve ourselves, not others. The norm is and will always be, take care of yourself, look out for your own, resist and reject those who disagree with you. Do whatever you have to do to make sure that you win. Assume the worst about others and do what is necessary to silence them. That is why we need new minds. That we receive a new mind that provides us this humility. Look at verse 5. Paul says that in order for us to experience and live out that kind of humility, for that humility to occur, we need to have not our minds, but the minds of Christ. Now the translation that you have there in front of you in the NIV, it puts it this way, verse 5, it says this. Let me read it for us. It says, In your relationships with one another, 
have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, I don't want to get into all the details on this, but this verse is actually quite difficult to translate, and there's a lot of debate about it. Uh, the NIV, which I just read, uh, and it's actually the version that we usually read, it tells us to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It, it's a command there. However, another way that it can be translated, which the ESV translates it uh, in a more literal way, more literally what the Greek uh, says there, the ESV says, have this same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, though subtle, do you hear the difference? See, in the second translation, you can have this mind not because of your own willpower, as though it's something you can achieve, but rather you can have it because it is yours in Christ Jesus. That is, for the Christian, you are given a new mind. And that's very in line with passages like Romans 12 that tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And here's the bottom line. Here's the point. Christians ought to think differently, period. If we are bitterly partisan, if we are so close-minded that we cannot hear or empathize with the experiences of others, if we can see injustice and easily turn away without trying to understand the plight of those under that injustice, if we can only love our friends and never love our enemies, hear me, we do not have the mind of Christ. But when we see a Savior who crossed the lines of division for us, when we see a Savior who empathizes with the experiences of his enemies, when we see a Savior who does not just lay down his life for those that agreed with him, but also for those that died, or that killed him, rather, when we see a Savior who gives hope of restoration to the oppressed and mercy for the oppressor, when we see a Savior with the might and power of heaven lay it all down to become a servant, when we realize our need for salvation, and we trust in him as the one who brings that salvation, Jesus gives us his mind by the power of his spirit. And hear me, my friends, to the extent we are transformed by the work of our Savior is the extent to which we will exude the humility of our Savior. And so with that in mind, I call you and I call myself to repent, to turn away from the, the sinful attitudes and pride and arrogance that refuses the mind of Christ, and instead turn to our Savior, the one who doesn't just give us a picture of what humility looks like as though it's something that we could attain, but rather by His Spirit gives us His mind of humility as we trust in Him. And I pray that this leads us to live humble lives that care for others, that turns our enemies into friends. And as a result, above everything else, puts on full display the glory and majesty of our humble Savior. I pray that that would be the case in my life. I pray that it would be the case of your lives and that God be praised as we see that biblical humility in our lives transforming not only us, but also those who are around us. Would you pray with me that God would accomplish this in us? 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love, a love that pursues us even while we were your enemies. And God, we thank you for the work of Jesus, the one who has laid down all power and authority in heaven, all riches in order to become a servant, in order to uh, come and experience our plight, to understand our experiences, to step into our story. We thank you for that great sacrifice and love and what he has done. And Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit, as we look to Jesus, that your spirit would give us the mind of Christ, that we would be humble people that reflect the beauty of our humble Savior. And may that not only transform us, but may it truly transform those that are around us to the extent that we even get to see enemies turning into friends. May your glory be on display in our lives as a result. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.